Are you ready? It's that time! Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Man Buns and Jesus. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Laborious. This is uh, this is we're in season five. We're not continuing with season five, however. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you're familiar with these kinds of episodes where um, we take a break from whatever our our agenda for the season is uh, and kind of just riff off on something else. And there's no event that like inspired this like sometimes we'll react to things that are going on in the world but uh it's called josh and i are still recovering from christmas yeah it's pretty much that that's uh (laughs) that's the impetus for this one um but it is this is man buns of jesus we're happy you're here and uh to let you know what rabbit hole we're jumping down today (laughs) is my co-host and uh and friend ben olschlager of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church out in Lake Orion, Michigan. So get us going, Ben. What are what are we doing today? Well, so Josh and I um we recognize and realize that sometimes on this podcast we come across as uh, like militantly Lutheran. Which uh, is not an unfair categorization. Yeah. Um it's we are very Lutheran um if my last name doesn't give that away um it's the fact that we're both lcms pastors doesn't get what are you talking about i don't know the career choice is what did it for um yeah it it means a lot to us and so sometimes i think we get a bit hard on our theological neighbors um there's like the long-standing Lutheran tradition of you know crap on the Catholics because that's what Luther did, um, which is not a great attitude to have a lot of the time. Yeah. Also, at like, some point, we we got to talk about, and everyone listening, stop doing this if this is something you do. Uh, Catholics are Christians, everybody. Like for some, and I think even some census forms do this. It's like Catholic, Christian, and they're separate. Mm. Catholics are Christians. The Catholic religion, that's the Christian religion. They just have a lot more tradition baked into it. Okay. So anyway. I had a conversation to that effect recently. Not the topic for this podcast, but guys, yeah. calm down with the Catholics. They're not that different from you probably a lot of good catholic people um but so to today to not to undermine our own theology but to like show that we do actually have a great deal of respect and love for our our brothers and sisters in christ across the denominational spectrum um we wanted to talk about some things that we see and admire in different denominations that are outside of our own tradition. Um, 
because I know when I'm looking for texts or books on certain things in in theology and in the church, there are things that Lutherans just suck at writing about. Um, Josh, were you, no, you didn't take Sanchez's class on the Holy Spirit. I did. Uh, I did, in take, fact, take that. Okay, class. so we, Josh and I were both in a class with uh, a professor who came from the Pentecostal world, uh, which is a world that very much emphasizes the Holy Spirit, and jumped into the Lutheran world, where he may have written the first book ever on the Holy Spirit. From a Lutheran perspective. From a Lutheran perspective. Uh, and like, when we were taking that class, every book that we read, save maybe one, came from outside the Lutheran tradition. Except for the main book for the class, which was his. Yes, that's what I'm... Yeah. 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 So we recognize that there are times where we need to lean on our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who spend more time thinking about different things because our context and the context that formed Lutheranism often push us in certain directions. And if we're curious about certain things, there are other churches that spend more time thinking about those things than we do. So um, Josh and I are in our reading going to go outside of Lutheran books to find answers for things. Yeah. And what I would, I'm going to go on just a tiny tangent here because I, I know for a fact that this will be a useful bit of information for at least some of the listeners that come from my congregation. Okay. So we want to be clear here on what we are doing. And that is, um, like Ben said, we are not compromising our theology at all. And at this point, I want to introduce a helpful isn't the right word. A useful term to succinctly describe something that uh, the Lutheran Church uses. And that is altar and pulpit fellowship. Okay. This is the gold standard in saying we agree with another church body. Um, and what that is kind of shorthand for is if we have altar and pulpit fellowship with someone, that means that they can, like, we share, we have no problem if someone from that church body communes with us uh, and their pastors can preach from our pulpits. That's the core of altar pulpit fellowship. Um, it applies more to pastors because, right, I should not be preaching at a church that we don't have altar pulpit fellowship with. And if a pastor is part of a church body who does not have altar pulpit fellowship with us, um, I, he can't preach at my church, at the church that I'm responsible for. Okay. So all that to say, there are not very many American churches that we have altar and pulpit fellowship with. I think there's like two. I think it's just one. And I think that denomination has like four churches in it. That's, that's an underestimation. It probably has more. If you're part of that denomination, don't get too mad. I'm... To be to be fair to Josh, I think the church body that he's referencing, I'm, you're thinking of the AALC, right? Maybe. Yes, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, I believe, I can't remember if it's 10 or 20,000 members, but when you think about that in context of 
the the LCMS, which has two million, roughly a little under uh, two million. That's one percent of the the LCMS's size. Yeah. Um, um, but all of that is to say, when we say we're looking at other denominations for, um, and and we're going to call attention to some of the things they do well. These are not really theological things as much as they are practical things. Some of them might have some theological, like. They might be driven and, and we maybe can get into where different mm -hmm. theologies have led denominations to excel in different places. But when we mm -hmm. say, uh, for example, the, the, Baptist, the Southern Baptist Convention does a really good job of youth and um, youth and family ministry. A lot of times you'll see their churches embedded with uh, great education programs, and you'll see them embedded with uh, all sorts of extracurriculars um, that help to connect families in, in kind of a Christian context. I have a lot of respect and admiration for that. I am not saying that their theology of anything is... Uh, it's here's how they practice their Christianity that I am admiring. So that's for any for that's where I'm kind of saying, well, we're probably going to focus more on here's what they do and here's how they practice their faith that is worth uh, looking up to and admiring and maybe uh, leveraging that don't equate that mm -hmm. automatically with we're lifting up some aspect of their theology. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, we might be in cases where we think uh, to not get us in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> in in some cases, we might be where we actually think they're genuinely right. Like, because we can agree with people on different aspects of our theology without agreeing on the whole thing. Yes. Um, and so there will be places where we agree. I mean, with most everybody that we're going to talk about today, I think with everybody that we're going to talk about today, I shouldn't even try and qualify this. They agree on the, the the basic principle Jesus is Lord. They may not phrase it that way, but like oh, that's yeah. kind of a fundamental trendy, part of being Christian. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so like um we so that's the that's the distinction. Well, because this is on some level a comparative thing. Yeah. Um, so when we say, oh, this church does this better, we're not don't read theology into it. Sometimes yeah. just saying, oh, they're like the way they've structured how they go about this is yeah. really cool. And oftentimes we're looking at those things so that when we come back into our own framework, our own Lutheran framework, we have some new tools and understandings to see if they fit, see if they don't. Um, and that can be true with theology, too. Mm -hmm. It's just like for Ben and I, when we read theology that comes from outside the Lutheran world, we're reading it with a filter. Yep. Or when we come across things, we're like, well, that's not quite right. But that doesn't mean that, uh, like, my one of my go-to examples is Stanley Hauerwas. His book, oh, now I'm going to draw a blank on it. Resident Aliens. Resident Aliens. Great book. Who wrote one of my favorite theological books. Um, do I agree with him 100% on all the theological conclusions he has in that book? No, no, I do not. Does he provide some really, really helpful language for talking about discipleship and spiritual formation? Yeah, 
Yeah, he does. Um, so I, those are the disclaimers I wanted to throw out there and maybe some definitions. Um, and if you want a podcast explaining why we care about altered pulpit fellowship, uh, that's a whole separate, we're not going there today. I feel like we've done an episode on that before. So that sounds like something we want. We have like <laughs> hundreds of episodes, over a hundred episodes. We haven't reached hundreds yet. Yeah, we have a lot of audio out there. Yeah. Anyway, um, since you mentioned Hauerwas, who taught at Duke, which is a Methodist school, why don't we start there? I don't think Hauerwas is actually Methodist, though. No, I believe he's Southern Baptist, or it was. I, I thought he was like Mennonite, maybe? <laughs> that doesn't sound right. I'm gonna let you Google it because I'm, I'm gonna. I don't I'm think gonna... he's Baptist. Um. Anyway, so the Methodists have gone through a lot in the last few years. Um, there's there's been a fair amount in the news about their denomination, their primary denomination, the United Methodist Church, kind of breaking up. Um, and. That's, I mean, it's a shame. It's a shame to see division in the in the body of Christ. But I have the the advice and wisdom you know, of he grew up Methodist. Interesting. His family attended Pleasant Mound Methodist Church. Interesting. Baptized, confirmed, communed. Huh. No, we were both wrong. Um Yeah, but the Methodist Church has an interesting background because it's influenced both by Anglicanism, which in its earliest form was pretty Catholic. Uh, there's a sprinkling of Reformed theology, so a little bit of Calvin, and then a decent amount of like the Holiness movement, which is a like really leans into service and christian living um and because of that depending on what methodist church you show up at it could look one of like 15 different ways but generally i've come to know the united Meth know the united methodist church as very willing to step up and help out um I remember my vicarage year in, in Nebraska, uh, part of the, the local community was flooded out by some pretty st strong spring floods and, uh, and rains. And um, there were a group of churches that were coordinating the recovery efforts and the the guy who was actually leading the charge in the field on a day-to-day -day basis was the pastor at the local united methodist church um and he very much saw it as his and his church's responsibility 
to first and foremost go and serve their neighbors. Um, and I thought that was pretty, pretty spot on, honestly. Like Luther has that quote, uh, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And I think they may not have known it, but they very much lived it. Um, and they might be coming from a little bit different place, but their heart was definitely uh, formed towards service, which I think was a really cool aspect of what I saw in the Methodist church. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the places where our theology obviously would push us to the same place. Mm -hmm. but you don't always see that mm -hmm. you don't always see all churches you don't always see lutheran churches being the first to step up and serve mm -hmm. some of them do but mm -hmm. maybe with less consistency than you might see yeah i think we're so pushed towards the you kinds can't of things tell someone that... they have to do good things because that's workers righteousness yeah yeah you're so we're so pushed towards the things that Luther was struggling with, namely that you can't force someone to do something that you right. struggle with that. You can't force someone to do something, but I can tell you, you should do it. Yeah. So, um, did you have anything else with the Methodist church or, cause no, I got there zero interaction with the methodist church that's fair um i'm good with uh why don't we tee you up for one that i know that you're a little more familiar with uh and i'll let you start running on this one but the evangelical non-denom non world oh yeah those you are can... really big out here like yeah really really big um you can I find think... those in in any size uh shape or flavor that you want to because You'll find them in, in coffee stores in a strip mall, and you'll find them in warehouses. Yeah. And anything um, in between. So when I think of the non-denominational churches that I've come across, uh, two strengths come to mind. Uh, and I'm going to try and not let my cynicism leak into this. So I'll do <laughs> We're so, trying to be nice, Josh. <laughs> I know. Um <laughs> I think one thing non-denominational churches tend to do very well, right? This is, I mean, none of this is a blanket reality, but they mm. tend to be great at branding. Mm. They're great at getting kind of their name out there. They're, they tend to be really good at building up online presences. Uh, their materials always look really slick. Um, well, tend to look really slick. I shouldn't speak with absolutes with that. But like they, their their logos look great. Their names match. Like, <laughs> so they they tend to have a very um, a very easy to like public image, right? Um, whereas you know, with a Lutheran church, you get a lot of us who the websites look like they belong in the 1990s all of the print material uh is bad the logos are also bad <laughs> and <laughs> i won't say the names are bad but they're not very creative it's uh <laughs> saint something's lutheran church uh mount calvary 
is a big one. Good Shepherd is a big one. <laughs> like these are like there's not Redeemer. a lot of variety. Huh? Redeemer. Ah uh, yes, Redeemer. Holy Trinity. Uh, Holy Trinity, Christ. Yeah, these um, are something about the word, something about a savior. Yeah. yeah. It's and not that those are bad. But that they're kind of boring. There's uh some fun particularities about the Lutheran and the way that Lutherans name their churches, but also the way that the Catholics name their churches. Uh, here's your challenge. Go find a town with a St. Peter's Lutheran Church and a St. Paul's Catholic Church. I. It's a difficult challenge. And it's here I am, Pastor at Edgewater Lutheran Church. So. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, I agree with you on the on the marketing and branding, and it's like one of those where Josh and I have talked on this podcast about just doing things well. If you're gonna, as a church, do something, just do it well. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly something that I think you're right that they do. They do they very do really well. Really well. Um, and themselves. maybe related to that is non-denominational churches tend. This is why I said I got to make sure I don't get cynical. <laughs> they tend to adapt very well to the contemporary culture. Mm. And what I mean by don't hear me like oh they're they're always caving to cultural pressure. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they see trends of things that are popular and they've done really well at co-opting some of those things to their into their churches. So one easy example of this would be social media. They've they have done really well to kind of use the rise of social media to various ends. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I mean, what, maybe another way to kind of think about this and look at this is in terms of communication, when you walk into a Lutheran church, um, there's a, a phrase that or a term that I I don't know who coined it, but I like it. Uh, Christianese. Um, like we as as Christians, especially as old school Christians, kind of have our own language for things. And it takes some, yeah. Stuff like, uh, <laughs> like, the hallway <laughs> <coughs> the fellowship hall um the the sanctuary the chancel the pulpit the altar the yeah and yeah some of those words i think are fair game right if you are an educated adult you should know what an altar is sure because christianity a... isn't the only one who has those chancel however that's not a that's not a reasonable assumption that people know what that is. There's a there's a fancy name for the the stick that if you're in a relatively old school Lutheran church, you this light and extinguish candles with. Taper? Is it called a taper? Yes. Yes, it is called a taper. Josh, I don't know why you know that, but I'm kind of proud of you in this moment. Um, what do you mean? Why? I, I grew up in a Lutheran church just like you did. I know. I never learned the name for that. 
So but there was you probably one... did learn it at some point. It just wasn't considered important enough information to stick around. That's fair. Um, I don't have that choice. It all just sticks around. But also, one Sunday, I was asking one of the uh, one of the members of the congregation to grab the taper, and I couldn't remember the name for it. So I was like, "the uh, the candle lighter putter outer stick." Um, but like, I was gonna be my guess on what you called it. Yeah, that's fair. But those kinds of things, because we have our own language for them, it can make it difficult for somebody to step in and hear and understand the Christian message. Yeah. Because we do that in, in things outside of just the, the practical or, or like object world. We do that with some of our theological terms too. And I think the evangelical world does a really, really good job of translating yeah to regular people yeah um, exactly and i think that kind of goes along with the, the communication piece the branding piece the culture piece yeah yeah um well and i would even say this is a measured compliment i think the they tend to be evangelicals and this isn't just non-denominational this is a little broader now um mm-hmm. They tend to be much more willing to actually engage with the world as it is today. Mm. And the subtext of that is they are willing to engage with cultural and political issues that a lot of Lutheran pastors are scared to. Mm -hmm. Now you can go too far, right? If your church (laughs) becomes a, uh, a soapbox to support a particular political candidate, I would say you have gone too far. That is not the church's role. However, there are a lot of a lot of political issues that the church has something to say about, and we should be saying something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but uh, a few years back with the election, there are a lot of uh, propositions on the ballot out here in California, and we put together a booklet for people in the congregation, like here the here the things on the ballot we didn't say here's how you should vote but we said here are some bible verses that relate to this topic here are some pieces of our theology that relate to this topic and on a couple of them here are some ctcr documents which is our national church bodies like they're it's like a really serious theological like you have a bunch of really smart guys who sit it's a theological think tank yeah and they, they write papers on it. And so I said, and here, if you're really interested, here's some documents about it. Here's what our faith has to say about this issue. I'm not telling you how to vote, but you like, think about this stuff, pray about this stuff before you decide how you're going to vote on the issue. Um, and by and large, Lutherans are not good at doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We're like, we're not going to touch it. Um, so a uh, a measured compliment to our evangelical brothers and sisters with the acknowledgement some of them go too far uh in mm-hmm. that direction so they're very willing to to dive into the crap um some of them just come up smelling worse than others <laughs> yeah fair enough um where do you want to go next ben i think within the evangelical world maybe we should also touch on uh baptists because go for it one more thing on non-denominationals because now i remember what led me down that train of thought even the title non-denominational 
fits with the current culture of the mistrust of institutions. Mm. Which for those of you who are lay people, I recognize that for a lot of churches, there's not a ton of difference between a church that is independent and not affiliated with a national body and a church that is, right? Because practically there's a, it's your church and you're not dealing with the national stuff, you're dealing with your church. What I will say is from a pastoral perspective, um, I am incredibly thankful that we have a larger network and a larger church body because it gives me a lot of support and it helps me to be a better pastor for my individual congregation. So mm -hmm. a quick plug for that, but um, even just the non-denominational thing of we're not going to mess with any of the stuff. We're just going to, we're going to be a church um, that matches, a, I think, a lot of where our culture is right now, where mm -hmm. we don't trust institutions very much. And I think some of that mistrust has been well-earned. So, um, yeah. Anyway, continue, Ben. Let's let's touch on the Baptists while we're here in the evangelical world. because oh, While we're here. Because the vast majority of um, the evangelical world, I shouldn't say that, the vast majority of Baptists fall into the evangelical world. I don't know if the vast majority of evangelicals would also fall into the Baptist world. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I think to me, the thing that's interesting and, and kind of fascinating about the Baptist world um, is the way that they go about evangelism. Because one of the first things that I know most Baptists to be trained well in is they learn the story of Jesus and why Jesus is important for them as an individual. And that makes it really easy for them to talk about their faith with their neighbors because they know what is the center of that story, what's what brought them to the faith in the first place. And now what is the greatest tool for bringing their neighbors to the faith now as well? Um, and yeah, there's some screwy things about the theology that gets them there, but. But the result is, is you ask, you. yeah, you ask just about any Baptist. They know exactly who Jesus is and what he did for them. And they tend to be much better at kind of being intentional about how they think about and how they go about their personal testimony. Mm. Um, which I think that it's a double-edged sword because it is really, it is a powerful thing to have the personal testimony there. Um, but I do think that is really closely tied with decision theology. Mm -hmm. So I think, because for a lot of these, I think it would be pretty easy for the Lutheran church to say, oh, we can take, a, like, we can use a lot of that. We can take, you know, um, the non-denominational branding we can take that as an example and work and, and incorporate that um this is one of the places where with the personal testimony i think we'd have to workshop that idea a little bit before we could say okay let's let's use something like this in our own churches mm -hmm. yeah but that's 
I think that's just kind of an addendum to the evangelical world because a lot of evangelical churches are, especially in the non-denom world, are just closet Baptists. Yeah, they're they're Baptists with extra steps. Yeah. Um, um, I some other compliments uh, toward our Baptist brothers and sisters, and the non-denominational churches that are basically Baptist, but won't say that. Um, <laughs> they are like i like i already mentioned they're great with family programming they they tend to have a a very broad approach to that kind of ministry but also their biblical literacy oh yeah how much they push read your bible read your bible read your bible is is something to be commended um and the fact i was actually i was looking at offering envelopes earlier today and some different places to get offering envelopes and a lot of them they have check boxes on there for church attendance, communion, whatever. Did you bring your Bible to church? Um, and you'll you'll go to a lot of churches like that, and everybody brings their Bible to church so they can take notes and whatever. Um, so biblical literacy is a real strength for for the Baptist church and and those who are. Um, closely related to it. And on your evangelism thing, uh, an anecdote that I want to add, when my family moved to Georgia, which for any of you who don't know, Georgia has a lot of Baptists, a lot of Baptists. Um, There's a reason that the Southern Baptist Convention is called the Southern Southern Baptist Convention. Convention. Um, But we moved in to this neighborhood. And within a week, I think three of our neighbors had invited us to their churches. Within a week of us moving in. <laughs> um, now, part of that is also kind of Southern hospitality and how, like, and they all brought food. They said, oh, welcome to the neighborhood. Here's some food. We go to this church, and it was kind of a, uh, but yeah, so their evangelism and their push for that is really impressive it is something to be uh to be admired and in a lot of ways to be emulated so all right do you want to go east or west Ooh, i want to go east all right let's go to the orthodox world um if you don't mind i'm going to give kind of a history one first and then i'll let you roll onto the one that i know you want to talk about yeah Um, yeah yeah so as lutherans one of the things that i think we undervalue is um that as luther was doing his thing and and writing um some of the things that he was looking at in terms of bringing theology back to its early church roots came out of the orthodox world um to the point where he even met with emissaries from the ethiopian orthodox church at one point um and they liked each other a lot they weren't quite in agreement to where luther became a an eastern orthodox uh i guess they're technically oriental orthodox in the ethiopian church but um he didn't become orthodox but he liked a lot of the things they had to say and uh they helped him a lot in his journey. Um, And it's good for us to recognize that their history goes back 
to the early days of the church. Yeah, to the early days of the church. And they lean a lot into that history, lean a lot into the church fathers, lean a lot into uh, early practices and habits of the church. Um, And they've kept a lot of that alive, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Now, are you ready? Go for it. (coughs) Now that you're coughing, yeah, just let me get lungs out first. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Yeah. So my my jealousy of the Orthodox Church. So for anyone who's not familiar, when we say Orthodox Church, that's actually covering a lot of different churches because the Orthodox Church comes in many different flavors. You have the Russian Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, like I think Serbian Orthodox is all, like there are a bunch of different Orthodoxes. Armenian, Syriac, Ethiopian, Egyptian. And one of the things you see is that they, so they don't do a ton of evangelism because if you are Greek, you're Greek Orthodox and you're going to the Greek Orthodox Church. It's, they're very, um, they're very holistically engaging. If, if you are a part of an Orthodox church, it's not just, oh, I go to this church on Sundays. It is, oh, I go to this church and I'm involved with a couple meals with them during the week. And I'm always having people from church over to my house. And, uh, and I go to the school and like, and I support the guy that owns the butcher shop down the street that I know from church. It's all, all connected. And like Ben Ben said this before we started recording, it's like people eat, sleep, and breathe their Orthodox Church. And that is really, really cool. That is, if if I if you were to say, Josh, what is your vision for what like if if you want to if I'm taking a, a congregation and it's a blank slate and you get to say, what is the direction you want this congregation to be? That is the kind of d- dedication that I want. That is the kind of culture I would want to build. It's not just, oh, we go to church. It's, oh, I love my church. And I go to meals with these people. I meet with these people. I hang out with these people. I, I watch games with these people. Like, this is my, these are my people. This is my community. And frankly, I think that's what the New Testament church points us toward. So this is one of the areas I'm like, I would mm-hmm. love if we, in that, in that regard, <laughs> would be more like the Orthodox church. Um, but that is countercultural. Mm-hmm. That is not where the American church is right now at all. Mm-hmm. It is my church is a buffet. I go there for what I need and then I leave. Um, and if they don't go the direction I want, I'm just going to go find a new church. So, major props to the Orthodox churches for that because mm-hmm. that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And they know how to decorate, too. In a very different way than non-denominationals know how to decorate. I yes. Remember. Yes. Um, look up a, an Orthodox Church's website. Probably not going to look that nice. Look up an Orthodox Church's sanctuary. That's where they spent their time. Yeah. And it is going to be chef's kiss. hard. Like... There are Orthodox churches to feel reverent, yeah, in an Orthodox sanctuary. It is hard, like it. 
it, it, it feels like a sacred space. And it is, right? Sanctuaries are, sanctuaries are uh, sacred spaces. But no offense to them, if you walk into a non-denominational sanctuary, it's a room with chairs and a stage. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel sacred. It is, but it doesn't feel, you walk into an Orthodox sanctuary and you're like, this is a sacred place. Um, I know Orthodox churches that meet in strip malls that have more beautiful spaces than like hundred year old established churches, yeah. established churches. Yeah. So I would let Orthodox people design a sanctuary for me. I wouldn't let them decorate my house. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a great video channel that walks through some of the differences in spaces and theology in different denominations called the 10 minute Bible hour. And, uh, uh, wait, what? That was ten, a bad name. They picked a bad name. I know. I Hours know. are not 10 minutes long. Anyway. Um, but he did a little, like, I think it was three part series on orthodoxy. Um, and one of it was on the, the inside of the sanctuary. One was on their theology. And then the third one was when he found out that the priest was also the guy who painted most of the icons in the sanctuary. Because as the guy is pulling out, he sees the priest finishing an icon on the mailbox. Like, they take so much time and effort that even their mailboxes look nice. Yeah. That's that's pretty cool um so i think the the last place for us to then start stop is before we get to before we get to the catholic church let's talk about the two two other uh british british denominations that we haven't touched on yet so one the anglicans i'm gonna make this one real quick um they are probably most similar to Lutheranism in terms of their theology, but they differ in some really weird places. But some of the things that they do that are really cool, at least I think so, is they really lean into Jesus was human. Jesus like talks about us as his body. So a big part of what it means to be a part of the body of the church is to be together and be with Jesus. That means coming together for worship, coming together to receive communion, and like your bodily presence is a huge part of being a part of that church, which I think is really commendable. Yeah. Um, and then in the Presbyterian world, look it up. They do a lot of really cool stuff with the Psalms because in some Presbyterian denominations, that's basically all they're allowed to sing. So they really lean into scriptural worship and what it looks like to worship in the, in the, the ways of the Bible. Um, and some of the stuff that they interpret out of that and, and the music that they make out of that is pretty cool. Now we can go to the Catholic church. Now we can go west. Yeah. Um, so the Catholic Church, I think one of the biggest compliments you have to give them 
uh, is I I forget which we read this at seminary. I remember Bierman explained it, um, but I don't remember what class it was or what book it was. The Catholic Church has an isness to it, and by that I mean by that is meant. I shouldn't say I mean like I came up with it. Um, the Catholic Church just is. Mm. No one ever asks, well, what happens if the Catholic Church disappears in the next 50 years? Or what if the Catholic Church stops? Like, no one, no one genuinely actually thinks the Catholic Church is going to stop existing. It is. It just is. And it's going to keep being until Jesus comes back. Um, so there's, there's a lot of... Uh, I think it, it is to be complimented for its institutional staying power mm -hmm. and integrity. Integrity talking about strength, not necessarily uh, the moral implications that sometimes come along with that. Because um, admittedly, they've had some institutional problems with that, but that's not what we're here to talk about. And also, they're really good at keeping tabs on their members mm. sometimes for better or for worse second only to the the mormons who aren't actually christian in that regard yeah yeah like my my family immigrated from germany in the 19th and 20th centuries and one of my aunts has been doing some history research on like where the family came from um between the the lutherans which they picked a lot of this up from the catholics and in, in germany like the baptismal records we've gone back 300 years plus you start running into a lot of johans and marias um and it's hard to tell which one's which but like they know where someone was baptized, how often they got to church, when they got married, uh, the last time they were like, one of them, I think, had something about are they up to date on coming for penance? Um, like, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So. I'm trying to think of what else I, I mean, <laughs> they're pretty cool. Yeah. They, and they protect what is also worth noting is they protect a lot of the history of the church. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of records. They have a lot of, they, they have just a lot of our church history is the Catholic church, um, which I think is a good thing because it's, it's going to be well-preserved and well-protected. Mm -hmm. Um, because for anyone who's unaware of this, until the 1500s, the Catholic Church was the church. In the West. In the West. The Orthodox Church has been the church in the East. Um, but, like, the Catholic Church is older than a lot of countries are. And, frankly, has more wealth than a lot of countries do. But... Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you're talking in terms of uh, un 
unending governmental structures of a single nation, the Catholic Church might be older than every other country on earth. Because even China went like from an empire to other stuff. I'm trying to remember if Japan still technically has an empire or an emperor. I don't know. So that'd be the only one that I could think maybe has outlived the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church is roughly valued, according to marketplace.org, <laughs> it's roughly valued at $65 billion, which is actually a lot less than I would have guessed. But yeah, that feels low. That just the gold I, the their property probably alone up there. has to be worth more. Yeah. I mean, a square mile in the middle of Rome has to be worth at least a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, but all of that to say, like, when we look at church history, when we look at the, the lessons that the church has learned, a lot of that we get from the Catholic church, from its, uh, its love of history, from its ownership of history, not in a, like, we have to pay them rights fees kind of way, but like that they just they lean into it so hard yeah which is great um and they keep a lot of the like rites and traditions and stuff alive that the church thought were thought was useful throughout the years um things like ash wednesday which is fast approaching um that comes from christmas a, is like three weeks ago dude calm down with the ash wednesday talk dude it's valentine's day Calm down with the actual state time. Um, anyway, Ash Wednesday was a Catholic rite of penance and it turned into something else. Yeah. And, but like, it's a tradition we keep alive because it, it's <laughs> valuable reason. to us. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for that, for that matter, uh, I listened to a really great podcast recently on the history of Christmas and without the Catholic church going to church on Christmas really wouldn't be a thing in the United States. Cause for a long time in Britain, you didn't, it was seen as uh, too close to pagan uh, celebrations and people just <laughs> and, axed it. And then we co-opted it. Yeah. <coughs> seriously look it up until the 1840s i think my wife would remember this better than me she listened to the podcast too the uh the u.s Con uh congress met on christmas day it wasn't until actually it might have been after the civil war that they stopped meeting on christmas day because it just, it wasn't important for anyone that wasn't Catholic or Lutheran. So, yeah, thanks Catholics. You saved Christmas. Yeah. All right, I think we are uh, toward the end. A lot of nice things to say. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
maybe just Josh. <laughs> Never. Um, but we are, we are, we've been going long enough that you're probably like, when are these guys going to finish this stupid podcast? Um, that's fair. So, uh, I would ask for, I mean, takeaways, I feel like that it's just, there are, there are good things to find in all sorts of different churches and mm -hmm. we can learn from each other in helpful ways. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. Do you have a yeah. separate takeaway than that? No, I, I mean, maybe to kind of spin off of that, like treat your brothers and sisters in Christ from other denominations in the same way too. Like, yeah, they may not be Lutheran. They still probably love Jesus. Um, and we have a lot that we can learn from one another and grow in our faith and grow as the body of Christ um, so that we can be a better church universally. Yeah. yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, like this episode on whatever platform you uh, choose to use, rate it if you think it was good. If you don't like it to the podcast, if you yeah. don't like it, just don't rate it, please. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was going to say. We don't like negative feedback here. Yeah. Um, so send this to a, a friend that you think uh, thinks we're too negative. Um, and then I'll follow up by saying you're you're probably still right, but here's some evidence they're capable of positive. <laughs> um, hey, and maybe if you have a friend who's in another denomination uh, that we talked about, you can send this to them because we said nice things about them. And and hopefully they'll appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Maybe they won't. <laughs> so if you have any uh, topics or guests you want us to try and get on, uh, go ahead and reach out to us either personally with text or email, um, or you can reach out to us on Facebook that gets checked from time to time. So with that, this has been Man Buns and Jesus episode something Doesn't matter within season five season of the exodus we hope you enjoyed it brothers and sisters go in peace serve the lord thanks be to god <laughs>